This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Lara Elena Donnelly discusses Amberlow. Then Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, reports on the AWP conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. And there's actually quite a lot happening in hardcover fiction this week. We have a new number two, which is Right Behind You by Lisa Gardner. Uh, we call this an edge-of-your-seat thriller. We gave it a starred review, and it brings back law enforcement couple Pierce Quincy and Rainy Connor, who were last seen in 2008's Say Goodbye. And uh, we say that devilishly clever twists propel Gardner's tale of family bonds fractured, mended, and sometimes destroyed. So um, that's out at number two. um, Sold a very respectable 11,000 copies its first week out. And she's doing a five-city tour to promote the story. Next book that's new on the list is down at number 12, The Prisoner by Alex Berenson. Uh, This is his 11th John Wells novel. Our review says it reinforces his status as one of today's steadiest practitioners of quality spy fiction. Wells is an appealing combination of brains and brawn. And uh, there's a side character, Ellis Schaefer's uh, sort of handler, who remains an active behind-the-scenes player who knows how to keep an operation on course. So that's at number 11, or I'm sorry, at number 12. Number 18, My Husband's Wife. This is one of those, uh, what, what uh, our features editor, Carolyn Juris, calls a Gone Girl on the Train novel, a psychological thriller in that uh, sort of Gone Girl, Girl on the Train vibe. And uh, in this book, uh, newlywed London lawyer Lily McDonald's best intentions land her in some of the worst predicaments in British author Corey's devilishly devious U.S. debut, in which almost no one proves totally trustworthy. I really think that like sometimes the reviewers write these things knowing that we're going to read from them on the radio, and they're just going <laughs> to... They 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 really filled that one with all the alliteration they could accomplish. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. And uh, as noted, this is the first book uh, published in the U.S. by Corey, who's a British author. And uh, we say that the book is as twisty as little Carla's glossy curls, uh, which this swiftly moving psychological thriller offers surprises right up to the finish. And uh, just moving down the list a little bit, number 22, Rather Be the Devil by Ian Rankin. Um, He's Edgar Finalist. This is his 23rd novel featuring uh, Edinburgh police officer John Rebus, who's been sort of semi-retired, but he comes out of retirement to uh, tackle a cold case that dates all the way back to 1978. And uh, we Mm. say that with its trademark blend of sharp wit and even sharper police work, this entry is yet another example of why Rankin remains in the top echelon of Scottish crime writers, which, for those not familiar with the genre, is actually a much bigger category than you might think. And uh, down at number 23, right below that, is 4321 by Paul Oster. This is 880 pages of book. Mm. And our review says that almost everything about the novel is big. The sentences are long and sinuous. The paragraphs are huge, often running more than a page. But the book is far from epic in its telling, though it is satisfyingly rich in detail. And it's a Bildungsroman um, spanning from 1947 to 1974, uh, starting with the birth of the protagonist and moving all the way up to a consequential U.S. presidential election. 
And uh, we say that one of the many pleasures of the book is Archie Ferguson, the hero, recounting his reading experiences, including Emma Goldman's Living My Life, Voltaire's Candide, and Theodore White's The Making of the President, 1960. Uh, Auster adds a significant and immersive entry to a genre that stretches back centuries and includes Audrey March and Tristram Sandy. So this is um, definitely a big, big book for people who like big, big books. Um, and uh, it's one of those, if you're in the audience for this, you will know it immediately. And if you're not, then that's okay. And finally, down at number 25, Behind Her Eyes by Sarah Pinborough, uh, another British author of mysteries and thrillers. And uh, we say that she effectively shifts perspectives between two complex characters in this twisty psychological thriller set in North London. And uh, it starts out with a woman kissing a hunky guy in a bar only to learn that he's her new boss and also he's married. Whoops. Uh, So uh, things become more complicated when his wife bumps into Louise and cultivates her friendship. And uh, this triangle becomes more and more ominous as the feelings become stronger. Uh, We say Pinborough will keep even veteran genre readers guessing about which members of the trio, if any, are providing trustworthy accounts of their pasts and presents. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Well, on uh, nonfiction, we only have three debuts. Uh, topping the chart at number seven is Nothing to Prove Why We Can Stop Trying So Hard by Jenny Allen. Now, Jenny Allen is the founder of If Gathering, and she writes on a theme many women will recognize, uh, according to our review, a feeling of never measuring up to unrealistic standards of happiness and serenity. And now she has also written various Bible guides, uh, and I believe this, uh, the, uh, the founder of If Gathering, uh, uh, gathering was founded at a uh, Christian uh, writers' conference. We say in this accessible and candid, Alan's work is sure to find an audience far beyond the many of if gathering uh, faithful. So that's at number seven. Now, not surprising, the other books we have on the list are presidential and Trump-related books. So we have uh, something called a Big Agenda, which is at number fifteen. Now, while it's been on the bestseller list before, this is the first time that it's been on the uh, top twenty-five. This is by David Horowitz, and it's called A President's Trump Plan to Save America. Sorry, that's the uh, subtitle. Uh, Next uh, up, we have at number 17, The Making of the President, 2016, uh, by Roger Stone from Skyhorse. Subtitle this is How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution. Now, Stone is the uh, is a, a political consultant, and uh, according to his bio, the strategist who played a key role in the uh, election of Presidents uh, Nixon, Reagan, and George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, and he was also instrumental in the 2000 Florida recount for the election of George W. Bush. So this is that book. And finally, at number 24, we have The Blood of Emmett Till by Timothy B. Tyson, and that's from Simon Schuster. Our review is Star Review. Uh, we say with rare immediacy, Tyson revisits the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi in the acquittal of those responsible in a gripping account of the cultural milieu of a racist environment. So, uh, not surprisingly, uh, topping our list are books that are reflecting current events. And that's what we have in nonfiction. And uh, current events is exactly what we're going to be talking with our author guest today as well. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Lara Elena Donnelly tells us about the rise of fascism in a fantasy world. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Jeff Howe. I'm the co-author of the book Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Lara Elena Donnelly on the line. Her new book is Amberlow. Lara, I'm so glad you could join us. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So Amberlow is your first novel, and we say in our starred review that it blends romance and tragedy, evoking Gilded Age glamour and the thrill of a spy adventure. So tell us a little bit about, um, just give us a a sort of overview of the novel and uh, kind of where it's coming from. When we pitched it, we pitched it as... John le Carré meets Cabaret, because like you said, it is a very high-adventure, high-tension spy novel. At the same time, 
as it is this glamorous, gaudy, dramatic, theatrical kind of book. And a lot of it does take place backstage or on stage or in the audience at a cabaret. Um, so it, it does have that kind of brutal, violent, high-tension thriller through line while being really, really glitzy. Um, so, I, yeah, I read that review and was like, that's spot on. <laughs> Well, we're always glad to hear that our reviews are accurate. Um, but the uh, the thing that sets this apart from both Cabaret and Jean Le Carré is that it's set in a created world. So there are many parallels with Europe in, say, the 1920s and 30s, but it's not Europe at all. So tell us about that setting. Amberlo is set in Amberlo City, which is the capital of a nation state also called Amberlo. Obviously, the title is drawing on a repeated theme. Um, but it, it's, it's part of the country of Ghetto, which is a loosely federated nation of these four nation states, um, which have historically operated fairly independently of each other under a corrupt government that is more self-serving than it, than it is serving the people of Ghetto. Um, and at the beginning of the book, that is beginning to falter under sort of an onrushing fascist movement, which has made the book uncomfortably relevant. And it, we sold it two years ago, thinking that it would be marketed as like a fun spy romp. And now that it's come out in this political climate, um, the comparison to 1930s Europe is uncomfortably apt. <laughs> I should say so. Well, I want, we want to talk about that in the comparison to a little bit, but I, let's let's talk a little bit about the characters. So we have, uh, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Cyril uh, de Paul, Aristide Macrocosta, and Cordella Lahane. Um, these are the three main characters. Tell us about their involvement in this uh, in this in this world. So when I have been sort of pitching this book to people, I, I've compared it to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by saying that it's stripper smuggler spy. Um, Cordelia is a burlesque dancer at the Bumblebee Cabaret. She's also sort of a small-time drug dealer because being a burlesque dancer is not paying her bills. And she's tough as nails. She grew up dirt poor. She's an orphan. Her sisters died. She's all on her own. She really has to make things work or there, there is no other option for her, right? She has to do anything she can to make ends meet. Um, but she's still like a bright, bubbly, feisty character. Um, she's, everyone really loves her. I was surprised because when I finished writing the book and I started having having beta readers critique it, they all came back and said, you know, Cordelia was my favorite character. And and I was maybe more inclined towards the boys, uh, but everybody really, really loved Cordelia. Um, the other two, so Aristide Macrocosta is the smuggler, and he's, his cover job for smuggling is that he's at MC at the same nightclub where Cordelia dances. And he's this very affected, glamorous, outrageous personality in his job and also also in his life. He He's a very glamorous person. But underlying all of that glamour and all of that sparkle is this really hard-edged, brutal, will-do-anything-to-get-ahead kind of person. So he and Cordelia have that in common. Uh, and he has raised himself up out of rural poverty by black market dealing. And uh, at one point in the novel, actually hires Cordelia to start running drugs for him. And then guns, and then refugees, and then things which end up getting her in a little bit of trouble. So that's Aristide. And Cyril is the spy. Cyril, Cyril is the discredited, sad, pathetic, um, just trying to keep comfortable spy. He used to be a top-secret agent until he was on a mission, which went horribly wrong. He was tortured. His cover was blown. He had to be sort of emergency removed from his position, brought home, had emergency surgery, and was put behind a desk while he convalesced, sort of in his... He put behind a desk in his shame, uh, and his day job now is to track down and destroy the careers of smugglers in Amberlo City. 
unfortunately, he is conducting an illicit affair with the king of the smugglers of Amberlow City, Aristide Macrocosta. So everybody is really, really tangled up in this sort of web of lies and deception and danger. So Cyril and Aristide have this relationship. Um, how open can they be in this particular setting as two men who love each other? They can be very open as two men who love each other. Amberlow is a very queer-friendly place. And in fact, all of Geta is, is fairly queer-friendly. There's an old religion that allows for, uh, for polyamorous marriage, so like with multiple partners, there are a lot of really masculine of center women of various different sexualities. The problem for Aristide and Cyril is less that they are involved with each other as two men. It is that they are involved with each other and have diametrically opposed professional goals, uh, which would like if Cyril's affair is discovered, he's not only going to lose his job, he may in fact end up in prison just for sort of aiding and abetting smugglers and taking bribes. Wow. So um, tell us how this, this, um, uh, this relationship and this, this very gay-friendly um, uh, country is working within a fascist regime. Um, I would say that, that it's not. <laughs> the fascist regime is is on the rise with the goal of really destroying a lot of what makes Geta Geta and what makes Amberlow City so vibrant and permissive. Uh, the leader of the fascist movement is a fairly religious man in a in a what we would call conservative. I've, I've actually had this discussion with several people about the meaning of the word conservative because in Amberlow, when I say conservative, I mean people who are supportive of and wedded to kind of the way things are working. So the radicals in Amberlow are these repressive authoritarians who are on the rise with very different viewpoints and very different goals than the current administration. And they are out to crack down on all kinds of vices, all kinds of lifestyles, all kinds of people who currently exist fairly harmoniously, um, but with what they see as just like unacceptable, loose lifestyles, and they are, they are ready to stamp that out. Within this, um, give us a little bit more. Can you describe, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to know the setting, like what, what, what do we see uh, in the setting? I mean, you know, it's someone that, you know, as we say, it's kind of a created world, world that recalls Europe pre-World War II. What do we see? You're going to get a lot of white tie. So because it's the 30s and it's all about nightlife, there's, there's white tie and carnations and people's buttonholes, women in bias-cut silk gowns or women in white tie. Um, there's people smoking cigarettes on every page of the book. Like I joked in one interview that the book should come with a Surgeon General's warning because there are so many cigarettes in it. Um, there's a lot of hair pomade. There's smoky jazz clubs. It's it's basically everything that I really love and wish my life was, and I put it into a book. So, are we think, thinking uh, maybe hearkening to like a pre World War II Berlin or a pre World War II Paris or something else? It's it's very similar to, to pre-World War II Berlin uh, in that there's this kind of doomed, chaotic energy of everyone needing to get in their one last party before everything falls apart. But it definitely has some elements of, like, the lost generation in Paris or, like, Gatsby's New York, kind of that roaring 20s, crumbling early 30s vibe, like the, the staggering end of the roaring 20s. Mm. And tell us a little bit more about the complexities um, b between uh, b between Cyril and uh, Aristide. Their relationship was really, I want to say fun. It was fun for me to write it. It's clearly not fun for them to be involved in it. Um, <laughs> it's very complex in in a sort of like they're they're not. They're not like the one true pairing who are going to be in love forever and like to the exclusion of all other, all other relationships. 
but they obviously have a lot of chemistry, and they care for each other, but neither of them is willing to put enough on the line to risk saying, right, I, I love you and want to be with you, because neither of them would admit the weakness of, of needing another person. Um, so they have this sort of give-and-take, push-pull relationship in which there's a lot of, like, complicated power dynamics and backstabbing and trying to do something good for the other person without actually asking them if that's what they want, because, of course, you know what's best. Um, and they just have they just have this fraught, fraught, sexy relationship that kind of makes you want to put your head in your hands and go, no, no. And then you have Cordelia. And then we have Cordelia, who gets drawn into this, not... It, it's definitely of her own volition, but I think she doesn't really know what she's getting into when she first gets involved with these two. Uh, she's worked with Aristide for a long time, but has never really liked him. She finds him sort of insufferable. Um, but she, because of the political climate, her buyers are getting kind of scared off. She's having a hard time making ends meet. Her tips aren't as big as they used to be. And she really needs to make some money, so she approaches Aristide to see if he has any work for her in her field of choice, which is dealing opiates. And he he needs to help Cyril, who's gotten himself tied up in a bad situation with the fascists. Uh, and he basically asks her to pretend to be Cyril's mistress to keep him safe from fascist scrutiny. And so Cordelia becomes this sort of accessory to Cyril's fascist collaboration without knowing what's going on. And she's the one she's the one of the three who has a much stronger moral center. So when she does find out, she is not happy about it. Wow. So that sounds uh, like a setup for a lot of exciting things, even without all of the political changes happening in Amberlow. Um, but meanwhile, uh, this regime is coming to power. Um, how How is that affecting the vibe in the city? I mean, you say everybody's trying to get in their sort of last hurrah, um, but uh, this is definitely the kind of setting in which people's moral centers or lack thereof are are revealed. So how does that become more apparent for each of the characters? Well, for Cyril, it becomes a problem almost immediately, um, because although he's, a, I think we think of spies as, like, brave, exciting people, Cyril is not what I would call brave. He is, he is almost immediately ready to sell out to the fascists to keep himself safe, to try to keep Aristide safe, um, because he's had this really bad experience in the field prior to, to getting backed into this corner. And he just really doesn't want to relive that or, or die, right? He doesn't want to relive his bad experience or die of another bad experience. Um, Aristide, Aristide crumbles more slowly. He initially is sort of unconcerned. He's not really sure that, that this uprising will have that much of an effect. But as things start to look worse and worse and worse he begins to scheme about getting himself out of the city he's very he and Cyril are both very focused on their lives and how they can avoid this oncoming shadow of authoritarianism uh Aristide also has sort of a sideline fencing people's jewels as they leave and they have to sell things so that they can afford to flee the country he helps refugees who are trying to get away, who, refugees who would be affected by the proposed policies of this fascist regime. Um, and as those, as those policies start to come into effect, there, there's a coup d'etat, right? So the fascists seize power, and, and people who need to get out need to get out immediately. So Aristide is helping people get out, but he's doing it for a price. Like, he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. And all of it is sort of ultimately aimed at getting him out of the country in, in like, a comfortable fashion. Um, and, of course, everything goes wrong for everyone. So, so that doesn't happen quite the way he planned. Cordelia is the only one of the three who really, I think, cares what happens to 
the country as a whole and really identifies with kind of the struggle that the country itself is going to go through. And instead of panicking and focusing on how to keep herself safe, she just gets angry. And, and Cordelia angry is a glorious thing to see. So who are the people that they are trying to help out of the country, and where would they go? Specifically, Aristide ends up helping this married triad, who, one of whom is a daughter of a very wealthy manufacturing family, one of whom is the child of immigrants, and one of whom is a... Um, a sort of exiled member of a, of an ethnic minority that even under even under the regionalist regime, which is the the corrupt regime that's sort of in place at the beginning of the novel, which is much more so socially permissible or much more socially permissive, um, even then, like this ethnic minority is sort of downtrodden and and faces a lot of prejudice. So it's these three people who have very different experiences, but who have all fallen in love and gotten married and need to flee not only because of their of their existing oppression, so like not only because one of them is a child of immigrants and one of them is part of this oppressed ethnic minority, but because now they are in a, a polyamorous three-person marriage, which is not not okay with the rising authoritarians. Um, so they are paying Aristide to sort of ferry them their assets and themselves out of the country, and they're going to they're going to hopefully connect with um, the husbands. So it's two women and one one man. So with the husband's long lost aunt in a foreign country who he hasn't spoken to for years, but they haven't really got any other options. So they're basically leaving the country where they've all grown up to go somewhere completely new where they know nobody, but which they feel is going to be safer than get a, under the authoritarian Aussies. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Lara Elena Donnelly, author of Amber Lowe. So how did the idea of this book first come to you? And um, as you said, uh, it, this was a couple of years ago uh, when things were politically quite different. So even though the, the timing might be seen as uh, interesting, um, it certainly wasn't a response to anything that was going on at the time, it sounds like. Well, I'm, I've kind of reflected on that. And I think that even though it wasn't a direct response to something that was going on at the time, there were probably some subconscious realizations happening. Um, I recently wrote an article about the 13 warning signs of fascism from the list that's on the wall at the Washington, D.C. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And, and when I originally was pitched the idea to write this article, they asked for historical examples of of the warning signs of fascism and i ended up giving examples that are historical in the sense that they happened in the last 10 years <laughs> like they're recently historical examples of the early warning signs of fascism so i think even though i was writing this you know before our current political situation really became what it is i i think probably Something in my hindbrain was telling me, like, things are not as great as they could be. Um, but, but the original idea for the novel came out of sort of this weird stew of having watched Cabaret for the first time and then several years later being in Ireland in this really beautiful place um, called the Sheafree Pass and, and coming, like, having a scene just pop fully formed into my mind with a character whose name I knew, Aristide Macrocosta, but I didn't know who he was or why he was there, except he was fleeing some kind of horrible thing that had happened, and he was waiting for someone to come meet him. And so writing the book, 
despite you know whatever whatever subconscious fears of of fascism were fomenting in my hindbrain, the conscious act of writing the book was like connecting somehow cabaret and rural Ireland. Is it uh, too much of a spoiler to know where in the book that scene now falls? Um, it could be considered a spoiler, but it it is the book that it's the it's the scene that happens at the end of the book, and it is the scene that has always been in every iteration of this story that I've written because it did start out as a short story, um, my first short story sale actually. And then I tried to write a second short story that didn't work, uh, which sort of got molded into that first short story and turned into a novel. But it's always every draft of the short story, every draft of the novel always had that same scene. And it was always chronologically the end. So, like, even if it happened as a flashback or even if the rest of the story happened as a flashback from that scene, it was always where Aristide ended up after everything went down. Now, I, I admit that uh, as a reader, I flipped to the end because um, as a as a queer reader, I always want to know whether the queer characters come out okay. And and I'm one of those terrible people who reads the end of the book first just so I know what I'm in for, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was braced for either a happy ending or a tragic ending. And instead, I got that that waiting, that moment of waiting. And it actually made me wonder, are, are sequels coming? Is the reader supposed to be left waiting in that same sense? Well, if you want to find out what happens, I would recommend buying multiple copies of the book. Um, I've had a couple of people ask me, you know, are you going to write a sequel? And it really depends. It really depends on sales. So get out there and tell your friends to buy it if you want to know what happens after Amberlow. You've mentioned before the um, the inspiration of cabaret that that played in in writing this. What was it that drew you to cabaret, and what was it? Which version did you see? You know, I don't know why I first ended up watching the movie. Um, I think my mom and I had just gotten a bunch of DVDs out of the library, and she thought I would like it. I I was in a lot of theater in high school, and even before high school, I was in a lot of theater, so. So she thought I would like it, and I watched it, and of course I loved it. And then I ended up, I I ended up seeing several years later, Alan Cumming was in a revival of Cabaret for the second time, third time, second time I think, and I heard him interviewed on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and he was talking about how he loved doing this show. He really felt like he had sort of created a new MC because, of course, the the original MC Joel Gray had like really gotten the role in lockdown. So Alan Cumming coming into it was really intimidated, but but felt like he had created sort of a, a his own version of the role, and that this was the last time he would be performing as the MC. It was his fiftieth birthday present to himself, and after that, he was never going to do it again. And at the time, so this would have been October two thousand fourteen. At the time, I was really broke and unemployed, but I knew I had I had to see it. So I bought a ticket to New York, and I bought a ticket to the show, mm. and I got to see Alan Cumming perform in the revival of Cabaret, and that was one of the most amazing... Like, I actually forgot he was going to be in it because I was so focused and excited on having gotten in to see the show that when he came on stage, I turned to the friend I was seeing it with, and I was like... Oh my God! I forgot Ellen Cumming is in this show, <laughs> um, and and getting to see that on Broadway was like just the most amazing experience. Well, it sounds um, really vivid and really uh, motivating, uh, I guess, to to have that experience and to want to create something that vivid in your work. And when we were talking before we started recording the interview, you mentioned that uh, you're a theater kid. So tell us a little bit about your own theater background and how that influenced the story. Oh, I've been in theater for so long. I can't even remember when I started. Um, But I did, I started doing Yellow Springs Kids Playhouse. I'm from a very small town called Yellow Springs, Ohio. Um, And there is a program there called Yellow Springs Kids Playhouse, which is they put on an original piece of musical theater every summer, and it's completely acted by kids under the age of 18. So I started at 8 years old doing this every summer. Um, Once I got into middle school, I was also doing the 
public school theater program, and I did, that would have been three shows every year, and then the YSKP show in the summer until I graduated. Uh, I just, yeah. And I've also done things like belly danced and breathed fire. Basically, if I can get up in front of a bunch of people and make myself look ridiculous, I'm really down with it. Karaoke is one of my favorite pastimes and not room karaoke either like the kind of karaoke where you get up in front of a bar full of drunk strangers and sing to them (laughs) (laughs) that's something i do regularly here in new jersey and uh i understand the thrill (laughs) but with cabaret there was something what was about the story itself that uh that 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 inspired you about the book what was it that you took from it i really like so there's two things that i really like about it um, and I have read I, the only iteration of of cabaret that I have not seen or read is the original stage play. I am a camera, but I've read all of the all of the Isherwood Berlin sort of meta iterations. Like he started by writing Mr. Norris Changes Trains and the Berlin Stories, which were adapted into the play I am a Camera, which became the musical, which then became a movie. Uh, which was then revived as a musical, and then Isherwood returned to the subject matter and wrote through this weird, uh, not fictionalized, but very meta memoir about his real time in Berlin as opposed to the fictionalized time in Berlin from the first two books, which was then, that memoir was turned into a miniseries on Netflix starring Matt Smith, and then the show was revived again with Alan Cumming a second time. So, like, I, that's one of the things that I love about, about Cabaret and its associated sort of spinoffs and, and source material is this bizarre, like, multiple, like, layers and facets of the same story with the same characters told so many different ways. Um, but, but what really drew me to the story, like that, that's sort of a form versus function kind of thing, right? I love the forms, and I think that it's amazing that this story could take so many forms. But the, the functional aspect that really, really drew me to the story is that because of the time and place it's set, it has this amazing juxtaposition of like the clean cut authoritarians who really want to like raise Germany out of the darkness. Uh, But like knowing what we know now with, with our sort of retrospective context, like those, those were Nazis, like the the clean cut guys who want to, who really want to get rid of the scum and, and clean up the city are genocidal Nazis. And so when you go back and you watch Cabaret or you read Isherwood's stories and the main characters are these, like, sad, drunk, disease-ridden, like, drug addicts who are living in dirty squats and, and turning tricks for, you know, their lunch money, they're, they're elevated to this place of, like, moral superiority because they're cast in opposition to actual Nazis who, like, no matter how well-groomed and respectable they are, we all know what they're, what they're really going to do. So I love the way that it, that it turns the, the CD into, into the great and good. That's beautiful. So what's it like having this work published in the current political climate? And uh, you said that people have been asking you about current politics an awful lot. You don't necessarily need to go into that if you don't want to, but um, but what's it been like for you as an author watching the world shape the response to your book? Terrifying. Um, it's been it's it's been weird uh, because most of the promotional material so so promoting a book seems to involve a lot of guest blogging like people ask you to write a blog so that they can put on their website so that you can talk about your book and so many of the requests that have come in like I had requests come in before the election that were like do you want to write a blog about the food in your book because there is a lot of really amazing food in the book or like do you want to write about theater or or like vintage things 
And then after the election, it was like every request for a guest blog that came in was someone saying, could you talk about, like, fascism? (laughs) And I don't feel like I am an expert in fascism at all. Like, I did do a lot of historical research for writing this book, but it was mostly reading, like, pop histories and, and fiction of the era or about the era or, like, just Googling things. And suddenly people were asking me to kind of speak not necessarily from a place of authority, but from a place of some kind of knowledge about, like, the state of our nation as it descends into some kind of horrifying, xenophobic, populist, like, cesspool. I don't know. And I felt really unqualified to talk about it, but also, like, it was the most important aspect of the book and that I should talk about it with the disclaimer that, like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just an author. Like, I I wrote this book, and I am as surprised as anyone else that it came out when it did. We've been talking with Lara Elena Donnelly. You can find her book, Amberlow, in stores right now. Lara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, tells us what's happening at the AWP conference. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Lodra Rinsler, the author of Love Hurts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, is here to tell us what to expect at the AWP conference. Hello, Craig. Thanks for coming on. Hello, hello, Mark and Rose. Am I ruining things if I if I say that I don't think any of us are actually in the PW office right now? You're not. Um, it's uh, it's a snow day here in New York. We're all uh, working from home, and through the miracle of technology, we are able to <laughs> pretend that we're all at the PW offices. <laughs> or at AWP. We could be there, too. Right. <laughs> right. That's, I mean, it, it, it bears on, on our topic of conversation. Um, so AWP is the uh, the conference for the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. Tell us a little bit about this year's conference and what makes it somewhat different from other years past. Well, so you know, uh, AWP is this big. It, it's a um, it's a it was initially an academic association for creative writing programs in America, and over time, it's essentially grown into a small press BEA plus an academic conference. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, all the American literary publishers go, they set up a booth and a huge, big, giant book fair. And then every, you know, 10,000 writers plus, uh, you know, from very famous to uh, not well known at all, come there and they all hang out and exchange business cards and, uh, you know, do go to panels. Anyway, um, you know, so they, they, they change it, change the city every year. And it tends to come back around to the same city every few years. And so uh, it was last in D.C., I think, in 2011. It's in D.C. again right now. The conference just started this morning. Um, And so, of course, because it's in D.C. and because creative writers tend to be free speech types and, um, you know, tend to be liberal in their politics, um, a lot of anti-Trump activity is planned for the conference this year. So tell us a little bit about some of those activities. There's a big thing going on tomorrow. Uh, there's, a, there's an action where, uh, organized by two separate parties where um, a bunch of writers are going to meet at the Marriott, uh, the Washington Marriott Marquis, which is where the conference is, and they're going to march the 40 minutes to the Capitol building. And then many of those people have in advance made appointments to... Uh, see their elected representative, and then they're going to go in and deliver, you know, letters, materials, petitions, or just talk uh, to their representative, um, or try to do so. Um, and this was organized by a professor in uh, New York City, who, um, and I have an article up on our site today about it, um, who thought, well, we have all these, you know, work people uh, and, and free speech people and writers coming in. Why don't we get them to meet with their reps? And then separately, uh, a poet named D.A. Powell 
uh, got help from Aaron Ballou and a couple others. Aaron Ballou is one of the founders of Vita and also one of the organizers of Writers Resist, which is now called Write Our Democracy, which is the organization that sponsored a whole bunch of protests uh, in early January. Anyway, so they, they're responsible for the March part. Uh, Robert Marshall, the professor from New York, is responsible for the meeting with the representatives part. And so that's the first thing. Um, on Saturday, uh, the, the D.C. organization Split This Rock is holding a candlelight vigil in front of the White House at 630 um, and, and I thought there was something on Sunday, but I can't actually find it. Um, and then I just, I bet you anything, there will not be a panel that will, that will go by without somebody mentioning Trump. Um, and many panels I think will just end up being all about the current political situation. Well, that sounds, um, a little tiring <laughs> almost, um, is, is, <laughs> I mean, I understand the focus, but, uh, also Presumably, there are other things that people are hoping to discuss at AWP. I'm seeing a lot of different conversations go by on the Twitter hashtag right now. Um, so uh, if anyone manages to talk about anything other than politics, um, what do you think is going to be kind of the, the theme or the hot topic apart from that? Uh, the snow and whether or not people made it there. Mm. Um, right. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, last year uh, there was a lot of conversation around, well, you know what it's going to be a lot of is, is in, inclusion or, or, or exclusion within creative writing programs. I mean, and it's going to, you know, that's related to Trump. Um, but uh, I think one of the big things that has happened in the world of creative writing programs in the last few years is um, what had been, you know, sort of tacit has, has become an a overt topic of conversation, which is, you know, are programs tokenizing people of color, you know, and, and not actually, um, you know, really uh, really doing the, the harder work of figuring out how to really balance their um, admissions and how to make sure that the programs are available to everyone who should be in them. Um, so that'll be a big topic. Uh, you know, and, and then it'll just be the normal you know, second novelists from the Midwest, you know, discussing how to write a third novel and, um, mm. you know, you know, poets of this, you know, some valley somewhere who come together and read. And um, it's also, I think it's, it's AWP's 50th anniversary. So it's a big conference for them. What is the attendance usually like at the AWP? I, I mean, barring the snow this year, uh, I, I know um, it, one has to register early. <laughs> uh, well, sort of. Um, the the you know it's 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 been somewhere between I think twelve and fifteen thousand for the last few years, and it tends to go up. Um, I bet it'll be a little down this year, but yeah, it, it's it's somewhere between you know ten or twelve and and fifteen thousand, um, which is mm. terrifying and, and daunting if you think you know I'm going to be a famous novelist. Uh, and I'm going to go to the Santa Fe program, and then you realize that there are uh, that many other people with the same thought. Right. Um, right. One should try not to think that. Um, but there's there's room for everybody, though. I I've, I feel like we we have plenty of room for many 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 famous novelists, uh, or even would be famous novelists. This is true. I mean, it's you know, it's it's become um, really the the world of creative writing has has become. Uh, a kind of a lifestyle, you know, and a good one. And and I think of all of the, um, I don't know, of all of the, the art worlds that I'm aware of, it's the it's the friendliest, um, and the one with the most room in it. I think, um, yeah, AWP is fun. I'm I'm sad I'm not there. It's you know, it's like seeing all of your your all the friends from your whole life. So, Craig, tell us a little bit about some of the people who were expected to attend AWP, and uh, are there big keynote speeches? How does how does that go? One of the keynote speakers is Azar Nafizi, who is the author of Reading Lolita in Tehran, mm. Um, mm. which and I and I think again that's going to, you know, seem a little more timely than perhaps the planners of the conference had expected. Um, there are some panels following up um, on Claudia Rankin's keynote from last year, um, which was about 
kind of race and MFA programs, race and creative writing. So that will be, uh, that will be happening. Well, it sounds like a very good time. And, um, and are there any other, uh, you sort of mentioned an array of political actions being planned. Are there, um, any that are being particularly talked about or that people are particularly anticipating? I like the idea of, of visiting the congressional offices. Do you think that's going to get anywhere that people will be able to really meet with their representatives or at least senior staff? I think so because the, the, the big push for it was actually that people organized to make appointments. And so the, the organizers of the event actually have spent the last few weeks gathering together groups of people from their same congressional districts who didn't know each other, and then having those people make appointments with their reps or with, with staffers in their reps' office. So I think actually a lot of people marching tomorrow um, already have appointments, and so they're just going to go walk in, which is great. I mean, that, that seems to me to be a really smart way of organizing something so that yeah. uh, you know, you're not just going there and being like, let us in, but, but you actually made a mass of appointments that And that helps to build community, too. Like if you're meeting people in your congressional district, those are people that you can then go home and maybe start a critique group with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's had a Facebook page. So, again, I, you know, for, for weeks, I think people have been sort of getting to know each other and hopefully it will result in things that are ongoing. Well, great. Well, Craig, thank you so much for talking with us. And, um, we are all snowed in right now, but uh, it was good to talk about the AWP. Thank you for having me. Always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rosella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly radio show. 